Hey, what's up? It's Brian from Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Uh, you hear us talk about the Patreon, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Maybe you don't know what that is. Let me just give you a really quick rundown of what it means to us and what it can mean for you. So uh, Patreon is set up so that you uh, pay a subscription fee to us for extra content. So all of the regular stuff that you enjoy about the show stays free. The flagship episodes, the bonus episodes that typically go up on Friday, uh, the retolds, the forgotten bands, the albums that change my life all that stuff is is out there right so we have additional content that we do allow folks who uh support the show financially right now let me just give you a a taste right so you you get a weekly newsletter it's just a quick read with some headlines about stuff going on in rock and roll stuff going on in our personal lives uh, some of the music we're listening to all that sort of stuff sent to your email inbox and then throughout the month you get a handful of uh, different things. Sometimes it's video, sometimes it's audio. Right now, we've got a uh, about 10 minutes of Murdoch uh, in outtake from a recording session where Murdoch is telling me a personal story that has nothing to do with rock and roll about a portable air conditioner and some real drama. So that's that's one little added bonus that you get. Uh, you also, we have an episode that will be going up very soon that is a uh, uh, an examination of sax solos in rock and roll. We, we try to determine the five best saxophone solos in the rock canon. This is the sort of stuff that you get, right? Um, so check that out, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. If it's in your budget, if you appreciate what we do, if you want a little more content to put into your ear holes, uh, we will give it to you right there. Patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You know the drill. You write us letters. We do the research, and then we come back to you. We report back. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. If you have something you want us to look into, this one comes from Emily. She says, my daughter took a photography class this summer, came home mentioning that the most requested photo of all time in the National Archives is a photo of Elvis and Nixon together. Could this possibly be true? Murdoch, what do you think? Emily, my first question back to you, a question back is... Did your daughter think it was photoshopped and fake? Because because like we know that it's not. Like it's a real photograph uh, and it's cow. and it's on like everything but yeah. but for a year after it happened it didn't exist. Yeah. So it stays under wraps for almost a whole year. It's broken by the Washington Post. Like can you imagine being that guy who's like I'm I have it on good authority that Elvis and Nixon were met. Oh, when did this happen? Last week? No, a year ago. But yeah, it was it's a fairly big deal. Elvis, I guess, asked to keep it under wraps. Yes, he did. Yeah. So let, let's break this into a couple parts. Uh, uh, first, because we're already sort of jumping to the story itself. Part one, let's talk about the literal question. Is this the most popular photo in the archives? And then we'll follow that up and examine this whole bizarre story behind how this photo came to happen in the first place. So well, why don't you just get us started by describing, since this is an auditory medium, what this photo looks like. So I think a lot of people listening have seen this. So it's a picture in the Oval Office of Nixon on the left and Elvis on the right. And here's what you're missing, is it's a black and white photograph. It's 1970, and no one can see that Elvis is wearing a purple velvet suit <laughs> next to Nixon. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I sort of want to break this question wait, like all the way down to its parts because I've heard this said, right? This idea that the quote, the most requested photo from the National Archives. But to be honest, until the Mar-a-Lago bathroom got raided, I wasn't sure what the National Archive was. Like, I sort of thought that was short for like a branch at the Library of Congress or something because the name is so generic. No, you're like not a nerd about this stuff. It, I, it's, I guess it's actually, I'm not. Yeah, it's actually more has a bigger footprint than that. Right. It's an actual place and it brands itself as the national archives, but it does have a full name. It's full proper name is national archives and records administration, but it has like other things. There's other properties. So it has two main functions. There's the maintaining the federal records and information and engaging with the public is one. And as a part of that, it actually administers 15 presidential libraries, which is a lot museums, uh, other museums and a museum in DC in 15 research facilities across the U.S., and now they have an online catalog, you know, internets. But the digitized records are just a small fraction. In total, they're said to be 13 billion pages in the holdings in the National Archives. Now, this all comes to exist in the mid-1930s because it's realized that the individual branches of government are very inconsistent in their record-keeping, which I can only imagine the organizational dynamics in something like that. So they decide it needs to be standardized and overseen, and so we get this new organization and a new position. They create this position, it still exists today, of the archivist of the United States. And to get us the question at hand and explain how this all fits together, most of the stuff in the archives is public domain. Right. I don't know if you came to understand what public domain was the way I did. Actually, I know you didn't. I, I learned what public domain meant from the hymn book in, right, in church. Public domain. Yeah, all those songs are public domain, which means that there is no actual copyright on them, so you can get a little loosey-goosey. Uh, but you can access a large portion of of the National Archives. And you can get copies of records and you can do all sorts of stuff. But what a lot of people use it for is to find ancestry records. Yeah, right, right. But, you know, if a photo is property of a government agency, like it is in this case, you can request a copy of it. But the question is why? Like, why would you know or think to do that? It's It, it felt a little weird to me that a bunch of people were just like, I bet the National Archives would print that picture. And there has to be an incident that started this. Right. Okay. So this is what we needed to find out. So this is what I went searching for. And yes, I found out there very much was an incident that started all this. So when Nixon leaves office... August of 74, it is under a cloud, as you probably remember, if you know much of anything about U.S. history. Now, this is not a U.S. history pod, so I will refrain from rehashing Watergate, though it's tempting. I'm not a crook. <laughs> but obviously, Too long, didn't read. this was a little more interesting to the average person than a lot of the presidencies before it, right? Because there was some intrigue. There was some true crime. We all know, even back in the 70s, we love true crime, baby. Obviously, the materials generated by this presidency are a little more important and a little more sensational, but a little more important to national security and U.S. history than a lot of the presidents that came before. Right. And the aftermath of Nixon's presidency changes the way that the records are handled, right? Because before, (laughs) it was a little different. Before, you could just take what was yours when you left. Like, literally, this is the background on all of the Trump stuff that's happening and has happened over the past six months to a year, it all stems from this. Because up to Nixon, presidents just took their stuff with them. And it usually ended up in a presidential library, sometimes a presidential bathroom, but usually a presidential library. Now, given what happens with Nixon, this all gets reevaluated. Because he straight up plans to take off with the Watergate tapes. And Congress freaks out. 
So they passed the Presidential Recordings and Materials Preservation Act. There's like an emergency session, I think. And this makes all of Nixon's material public property. So this then leads to the Nixon Presidential Materials staff being formed, and they have to control all the assets. And then that's tied up with them for a long time. For uh, for a little bit. But eventually in the 80s, they do finally reach their goal of making a big chunk of this stuff public. And then they realize that they might be able to monetize some of it. And so word starts spreading, initially only through word of mouth, that you can get Elvis and Nixon photo reprints. Did you know anybody with these? I didn't know the photo reprint, but I had the, the T-shirt that said the president and the king on it. Well, so it's all the same, right? Yeah. Like, And it's that picture. So eventually that picture gets loose. But the way this gets out, the way people realize they can grab it and then start putting it on illicit T-shirts or whatever, because I'm sure that was not like sold in a store. You probably bought that off a guy in the street. And it wasn't Elvis Presley Enterprises. Yeah. Either. Yeah, no. Or, so, or the Nixon fan club. <laughs> I was about to say, I'd like to meet those people. No, I wouldn't. Okay, so the way this gets into the national conscience is from a story in a column by Bob Green. Do you know Bob Green from the Chicago Tribune? Do you know this name? Yeah, I know him as a writer, and I know his downfall. Right, so, okay, that's the thing, right? He's a columnist for a really long time, and he gets famous for a bunch of reasons. Fascinating guy who at one point has a death plot against him that he chronicles in real time for his column. And in the early 2000s, he gets his own sex scandal, which we won't get into, and that's the fall from grace you're talking about. But for the purposes of this, what's worth pointing out is that he has these lifelong flirtations with the periphery of rock and roll history. One of the first things to bring Bob Green to notoriety is that he embeds as part of the band on tour with Alice Cooper Band. So you might not know this, but earlier part of Alice Cooper's career, he was in the Alice Cooper Band. So this right. is like a certain part of that history. Right. He was Vince. It wasn't Al- it, The band wasn't Alice Cooper. No, no, no. He it was, was he, a collective was, of right. people in a band. Right. So just as this version of Alice is imploding... He is he embeds in it and chronicles that he writes a book. You can still find this book. It's very expensive on, on eBay, but it exists. And Bob Green will also intermittently, for, for a long time, will tour with Jan and Dean, who we have talked about on this show before. It's weird. And he will play on stage with them, and he will write a book about that. And he's got this syndicated column. And in 1988, in this syndicated column, he will inform the American public that he's figured out that you can get your own reprint of the Elvis Nixon photos. And you can read that original piece. It's in the show notes. But after this column runs, within a week, 8,000 people request copies of this photo. Right, right. So now we know how many people found out about it. So is how, how do we know it's more popular than anything else? It's well, really the question that, that the, Emily asked. Th- this, is a, this is a good question. And the answer to most good questions is, well, we don't really know, right? The, it, the National Archives will tell you that they don't, really know the 8,000 requests in a week anecdote is why this photo gets the moniker of most requested ever but the National Archives actually created their own magazine about themselves it's called Prologues and yes you can check it out in the show notes and and like 20 years ago they took on this question in an edition of that magazine and this is what they said quote as it turns out identifying a single most popular photograph or coming up with even a top 10 list is virtually impossible so the reasons for why it's impossible are long and boring, but basically they just never really found a way to track requests very well. 
Now, I think it's safe to say that this was a very popular photo helped along by the novelty of it all and the, you know, the media mentions and then the idea that, you know, random T-shirt vendors were printing it on T-shirts and selling it on the street. Right. Do you remember where you bought that shirt? Yeah, I do. I bought it in New York City. Yeah. So, like, from a guy on the street. Yeah, I mean, some, yeah. I mean, I didn't buy it at Saks yeah. or Macy's. <laughs> no. I Because when I was in, I mean, the reason I know about the illicit t-shirt trade is I remember going on a school trip, I think we've talked about this, to Washington, D.C. when I was 11, 12, and had a little bit of spending money and thinking it was really cool that you could get, like, three t-shirts for six bucks or something like that, yeah. and they were, like, like paper thin. But there was one that was the Flintstones, but it was the Clintons, the Clintstones. And I came home with that, and my parents were like, what are you doing? And I was like, that's funny. And they're like, that's disrespectful to the office. And I was like, oh, I guess. Wow. Yeah. The, one time, uh, really real happened in real life, there was a, a tractor trailer in Manhattan that was going eastbound. And I forget where I was in Manhattan, but it was going from west to east. And it stopped across the street. And the guy, someone runs out of the cab and they go over and they open up the back and they roll down the ramp and they start yelling. And they start yelling, Kenneth Cole. And it's just start yelling, oh, Branch, shit. and yelling 40 bucks or 20 <laughs> bucks or whatever. And people just swarm all over and they've got racks of coats and they're just taking coats. And I bought a Kenneth Cole coat. <laughs> And that's the moral of the story. Yeah. And so, Emily, the part one of this is done, which really you wanted to ask. Like, So the National Archives really can't officially tell us whether it's the most popular, but it is very, very popular, popular or historically very popular. Very popular. So, yeah, I think that's fair. I think we can say yes-ish. It is a very popular uh, piece in the National Archives. And for Pete frickin' sake, can we talk about how this all happened? Like, can we talk about... <laughs> How I yeah, mean, there's yeah, we have yeah. there's lots of there's lots of places where you can hear about this. Well, I was going to say there, there we need to clarify that this is not the first attempt to tell this story. It's been told quite a bit, and there are a lot of pop pop cultural pieces out there about this already. Right, and mo- the most known are like movies. There, there was a ninety seven Canadian mockumentary, Elvis meets Nixon, and then a twenty sixteen movie, and I did not see this for some reason. Elvis and Nixon with Michael Shannon as Elvis and Kevin Spacey. As Nixon, and there's oral histories about it, and writers have written about this. There, there's a one act play, and yeah. there's quite a few books. And you might ask yourself why this is so notable, given that we hear about celebs meeting the president and even going to the Oval Office on like a semi regular basis now. I mean, BTS met Biden last year. There's a long Word. list of, of uh, encounters <laughs> that include James Brown, which happened just a few years after Elvis, Elton John, Michael Jackson, they all end up at the White House. But what we'll attempt to do, as normal, is to give you the in, this incredible story as unembellished as possible. And I think to the point of why is this noteworthy, well, because it was done in a pretty unorthodox way. This was not a scheduled, I'm calling, uh, or I'll have my secretary call your secretary sort of setup meeting, no. um, which we were about to find out. But also, up to this point, there hadn't been a lot of this. I mean, I, I did a little research on music in the White House and when this starts to happen. And that, you know, as soon as the White House happens, 
there is entertainment in the White House. You know, this is a guy living in a fancy house with yeah. a lot of power. So, of and, course, there's entertainment. Yeah. Andrew Jackson is his inauguration, and they had, part, they had Bo Cephas after Hank Williams yeah, Jr. Yeah, Hank Jr. was that. there. <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness, up to this point, there hadn't been a lot of, like, pop music people hanging out in the White House. Right. And if we put it in a timeline, think about that. This is Christmas 1970, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watergate's two years later. Yep. That's 72, and then Nixon resigns 74, and Elvis is dead three years later in 77. So we do know that drugs are involved. And well, yeah, let's talk about this it, up top. What yeah, drugs are involved? I, I heard it's just amphetamines or whatever, but like, I, I don't know. Like, I couldn't be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because I don't, I don't know what amphetamines does. But the behavior is pretty erratic in what Elvis is doing because he's, you know, we'll talk about it here. Like, he's traveling. In a very odd, you know, it's, sort of it's way. all weird. And most tellings of this story totally brush over the drug part. You don't, I mean, if you read about almost any of it, the really the only place when I was researching that I got people on the horn talking about drugs was on Reddit threads, which, you know, most Reddit threads eventually you're talking about drugs. So I, I don't know that we can trust any of that. But I, the story starts like so many stories of men doing crazy things with a man fighting with his wife about money. Right. So this is Christmas 70. Elvis has spent a lot of money on Christmas presents. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I, I was surprised to find out that there's actually been scholarship on this topic of what he bought. Yeah, and I, I know what he bought. Okay, well, hit me. He spent $100,000 in 1970 on 32 handguns and 10 Mercedes. <laughs> So Elvis buys all this crap. So what happens? Priscilla freaks out. Vernon freaks out. Um, well, let's introduce Vernon. If if somebody's an Elvis newbie, Vernon is Elvis's father. So he's still like an involved. He's he's still around. He lives there, and so Elvis flips. And apparently, from what we understand, and this is a little vague. He gets on the first flight out of Memphis and goes, it, it's, that goes to D.C. It's, That's what we understand. And Jerry Schiller understood, who was with him in the Oval Office eventually, yeah. said that it sounded like he went to D.C. before he met him eventually. So, so he did. Now, backing up a couple of things. One, with this conversation about money, it is important to note that his financial situation is deteriorating. They're not wrong. Vernon and Priscilla have reason to be concerned because 72, 73, it gets really bad for him in terms of finances. But this is still a few years out from that. This conversation about cash is what is said to be the inciting incident for all of this. He gets scolded, and then he does something that he never gets to do. This is noteworthy because Elvis, you said he takes off. He takes off by himself. Yeah. At this point in his life, if you know anything about Elvis, Elvis doesn't do, I mean, literally, and I'm not kidding, he doesn't really even go to the bathroom by himself, right? Like, right. he doesn't do anything by himself, and he gets so mad, he takes off, he doesn't tell anybody where he's going, and he does go to D.C. And yeah. how does he do it? He takes he takes the first flight out. He takes a commercial, commercial flight. fucking flight. Yeah, and, and, goes, <laughs> and goes to D.C., um, and, no. and Jerry Schiller will t say this later that when eventually we'll need to talk about how he meets Jerry eventually, but he says eventually once he meets Elvis in the middle of all this, he says to make sure if anyone asks that he's okay, that he hasn't been kidnapped and like you yeah. haven't been kidnapped, yeah. Jerry. So that yeah. he's like, he's, you know, obviously the idea that he's run off is a very 
different thing, and he's worried that people are going to flip out. Well, a lot of stuff I read just basically acted like he was being super erratic and had no reason for where he was going and why, but I did more digging, right? So most of what you read basically just says, like you did, that he he seems to have taken a flight to D.C. Now, I found a version of the story that claims his initial reason for D.C. in particular is not presidential, but it's another woman. Yeah. Now, Elvis at this point in his life has a lot of girlfriends. And he's had this girlfriend who was a staffer on Capitol Hill. And they had been in a fight at some point. And, you know, when you fight with your mistresses, it gets strung out because you don't see them every day. So he decides he needs to see her. And so now he's on this commercial flight to the country's capital trying to get to this woman who works on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so when he gets there, apparently he realizes he's, he doesn't have her phone number, so he, he can't find her. <laughs> Jerry Schiller's version is that he got to Elvis to, and got to D.C. and didn't know what to do. So Jerry didn't really talk about whether he had a girlfriend or not, so this is still in the, the lore. But anyway, what do you do when you can't find someone? You call a friend for help, and this is where... This is where Jerry enters the story, to your right. point. This, it's you know, I also think there's got to be a certain point where Elvis is freaked out about being... Solo, like, because he's just not used to it, right? And so he decides he needs Jerry. Again, the version that I read that involves the mistress is, Jerry, I don't know what to do. I need you to come help me find this woman because I don't know how to find her. And so Elvis does what you do when you're in D.C. and you want to talk to someone who's in L.A. because Jerry Schiller is in L.A. So what does he do? Does he pick up the phone and call him? No, you just get on another airplane, airplane if you're Elvis. <laughs> he right? just goes back to the airport. He's like, I guess I'll go to L.A. and I'll find Jerry. Well, and remember, here's the other thing that when you hear this story and it sounds bizarre that people leave out is that Elvis has houses everywhere. So he's got a house. He he doesn't yeah. have a house in D.C., but he's staying, he in a, one in- he's staying in a nice hotel. What name does he use in John Burroughs is his alias. John Burroughs. Yeah. Uh, but then he has a house in L.A., so he knows he has a, a place to crash in L.A., and maybe Jerry was at that house. I'm not sure. But, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you? He flies to L.A. He gets Jerry. They get on another plane, red-eye style this time. They go back to D.C., and it seems that it's on this flight where Elvis's motivations from the trip, if you believe the story about the mistress, start to shift from woman to president. Right. There's a quote or letter somewhere with Elvis trying to explain to this girlfriend when his motivation for this trip totally changes. Oh, yeah, I have that over here. Look, this is hilarious. I forgot about this. Quote, so, can I, should I read this in an Elvis voice? I feel like, like I usually don't yeah. do voices, but I feel like you have to for this because it's ridiculous. Listen, man, if you don't be reading this Elvis voice, you're going to be losing the whole thing, Brian. <laughs> I, I swear, I swear I didn't, I didn't think of seeing Nixon until after I was here and I, I couldn't find you. Uh, like I said, I was on the plane coming back with Shelling and that's when I got the idea about Nixon. Started writing a letter to him right then and there. Started writing a letter to him then and there is an Elvis quote if I've ever heard one, right? <laughs> it's totally a weird thing to say. Uh, it's one of the best and weirdest parts of this whole story, man. The letter is yeah. amazing, and it's in the show notes. American Airlines stationery. Yeah, he asked for it, and they found out there was stationery. Do, so do you think that still exists, American Airlines stationery? No. I, you know, I actually looked. You know, you know I did. You know I asked that question, and I actually looked. So you can buy vintage shit that people have kept you can on buy. eBay. Yeah, you can buy it. Yeah, but I don't think they still offer it on the plane. You can't ask for a Bloody Mary and stationery. <laughs> I'm going to try it. I'm right. going to try it. Right. So that's amazing. So Elvis asked Jerry Schiller to proof it. So imagine you're sitting next to the king of rock and roll, Elvis <laughs> say, Presley. Say this like Elvis. And he says, proof this letter I wrote to the president. Because <laughs> that's what freaking happened to Jerry Schiller on a plane. Uh, but, okay, so but why... 
Why? So we said this is where his motivation shifts, but what shifts his motivation? What gets him to thinking about visiting the president? And, I, and this is where it usually gets attributed to two conversations that happen while he's on the plane. Yeah. One is a story that he had a conversation with a soldier, and Jerry Schiller will back that up. And another is he had a conversation with a senator. So did you hear this? Did you, did you hear about the check cashing incident that happens in the story? No, I, I actually don't have that in the notes. What, okay. what is that? So... So they're they're leaving L.A. Um, or they're getting to L.A. and they need money. So it's 1970. Yeah, so yeah. Elvis has a credit card and a checkbook. So I did I did read that he took an American Express card, which right. I didn't verify if American Express was around in '70, but I guess so. So they were in a car, I guess, going to the airport in L.A. And the guy driving them knew where they could cash a check, Brian. Like a pawn so, shop? I don't know. And so Jerry Schiller gets a writes a check for five hundred bucks. Okay. And they they have that. And so Jerry Schiller, who I, I would assume hearing directly from him, this is probably a pretty good source because he was the guy on the plane proofing the letter to the president that Elvis wrote. <laughs> That he said that he struck he struck up a conversation with a soldier because it's Christmas time and all these soldiers are coming home from Vietnam. It's seven, right, right, right. And he started talking to one of them, and he um, he asked Jerry for the money and got all five hundred dollars and gave it to one of the soldier he was talking. Really? To. Yeah. And so Jerry was like, "This is kind of typical. You're with Elvis, and Elvis just like calls an audible, and you're like, uh, yeah, what do you do? We're going to right. another city, and we don't have any money, right. and I'm with Elvis. Yeah, you know, like." So that that happened. So I, here's further research led me to think that yeah, there was this conversation with a soldier who gets him sort of worked up about social issues. But I think most of this, his motivation for wanting to see Nixon, mm-hmm. actually comes down to his badge collection. Yes, it's the it's 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 the he needs stinking badges. <laughs> That's what it is. If you don't, if you didn't understand, so the reason that this photograph happens, oh my God, the John Wayne quote is yeah, amazing. Thank yeah. you for that. The <clears throat> reason that Elvis, this photograph exists, is because Elvis needed a badge. Now, now, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Elvis collecting badges was a thing, and I guess like you're an Elvis scholar of sorts, so you knew about the badge thing. Yeah. So okay. This is insane. And, and law then, enfor- like he has a law enforcement thing, so he well, meets police officers. He gets and, excited, and, and he wants to collect like from different departments and stuff. Right. So he yeah. does that, or he's an honorary. He's he likes, a cop. He likes. He likes to. He just digs on law enforcement and guns. So, yes. And the great thing we've talked about this because of some of the shows we've done about the Grateful Dead. The great thing about researching the Grateful Dead is everything is very well documented. Elvis is similar. People who get very into Elvis get very into Elvis. And so you can find all sorts of stuff where with a lesser artist, you know, things sort of disappear into the ether. So you can actually find pictures of a chunk of this badge collection. And of course, they're in the show notes. Right. But one badge he didn't have, everybody, was the Federal Narcotics Badge. And this is a quote from his widow. <laughs> I, just wa- I, I just want to say that during the research... For this, at one point, I just got a text from Murdoch that was just this quote. Yeah. Like, he just texted me this quote. This quote, which I'm about to read to all of you now. <laughs> quote, this is Priscilla. The narc badge represented some kind of ultimate power to him. With the federal narcotics badge, he believed he could legally enter any country wearing guns and carrying any drugs he wished. 
I'm just staying quiet for a second to let that sink in. <laughs> I'm start. I'm starting to feel this stuff right now, Brian. So his his lust for this badge, lust for this badge, somehow comes up. It is. It can only be described as lusty. Uh, so it, he's talking to this senator, and I'm sure this is weird. Like. You know, we don't have the transcripts of this, but I can only imagine that the senator is like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Elvis. And then Elvis is just asking him random questions about how he gets a federal narcotics badge. And he asks the senator about this particular thing. And I'm sure it's a brush off. But the senator, like, I mean, how do you answer that? Right. You're a senator. You got actual shit to worry about. And he basically just tells him, like, I mean, you're Elvis. Why don't you just go ask the president for one? And this is the moment where he asks. For the American Airlines stationery, <laughs> and the trip becomes less about the mistress officially and more about meeting Nixon. Now, to be fair, Elvis does promise to do his part in the war on drugs if he gets this badge. This is from the American Airlines stationery letter. It's from the letter. I, 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 <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to read it in his voice. I'll just read it. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, mm-hmm. and I am right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. And speaking of doing, there is no calling the White House. Again, we've already seen Elvis doesn't call people. He shows up. Right. So when they land on this red eye, it's 6.30 in the fucking morning. <laughs> And the king is at the front gates of the White House, and he gives this airplane stationary to the security team. This is from the letter, everyone. Quote, and I want to do it in the voice, too, but I can't. (laughs) Sir, I can and will be of service that I can help the country out. I would love to meet you. I will be here for as long as it takes to get the credentials of a federal agent, end quote. Okay, I just want to come back for a second. What drugs is he on? Right. I mean, he's got to be, and, and like he's just getting, I think if you, as much as we're having fun with this and as much as we're going to laugh because it does produce some ridiculous things, and, and we're not done. We've got more to go. And, but it, there, it is, there's an element of it that's a little sad. Y- yeah. And before, I want to tell you something. Before he, they actually go to the White House, I want to interject with something that's super funny. Okay. But whenever we need no, to No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Because we're at the White House gates. Okay. So they get out of the car <laughs> at the White House gates, and no one comes to the White House gates. Right. So the Secret Service, everyone peeks their eyes up. Schiller gets out and goes, hi, hello, Mr. <laughs> Presley would like to give the president a letter. So that happens. Um, and so the guards are like, you know, they see Elvis. Kick ass, right? So that letter, you know, it goes into the White House. Then they go back to a hotel where John Burroughs, a.k.a. Elvis Presley is staying and they go to a room and Elvis leaves Schiller in a room and tells him to call him at this number and leaves this number. And then Elvis leaves. Well, yeah. You know where he goes? Yes. He goes to get the badge. (laughs) So, so at some point, Jerry Schiller called the number and and someone answers that, you know, work whatever that, that department is called, the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Narcotics, whatever. And he's like, 
my name is Jerry Schiller. I'm looking for Elvis Presley as Mr. Presley there. And it's this odd conversation. But then Elvis gets on the phone. And I, he basically is like, that's no good, man. You know, it's like he tells They him, won't give it to him. But by the time that conversation has happened, he has to tell Elvis, Elvis, the White House has called back. has just called and it's uh i forget it's the it's a, not the chief of staff yeah, so here's what happens it's an aide that the, calls the, the letter goes from the front gate to bud crow yeah and he's a fan yeah and crow knows who this guy is right he's a legitimate fan of elvis and he thinks this is a pretty cool idea like nixon with elvis this could be cool i'm thinking through the pr so he calls the chief of staff convinces the chief of staff that this is a good idea. And then that's when he calls the hotel, tells Jerry. Meanwhile, the one part of the story that's always glazed over, except when you're telling it, is is yes, that Elvis is at the Bureau of Narcotics, and they tell him no. So yeah. here we are. The letter is at the gate at 6.30, and by noon, Elvis yeah. is at the White House. Elvis at the White House. And now Sonny West, part of the Memphis Mafia, for some reason, has flown I, in. I don't know. Yeah, I guess they just call him and he flies in. Yeah. What's going on, little Lee? So he he shows up, so he's there too. <laughs> and you already mentioned how flamboyant Elvis is looking in this picture. But walk through it again for me. Yeah, so, okay. He has on a purple velvet suit, a big gold belt buckle, and big-ass sunglasses. And he comes to the White House. This is crazy. With a Colt 45. So he was flying across the country... With the firearm. Airline regulations very different back in the day. And then came to the motherfucking White House <laughs> with a gun. So He secret- supposedly took it from his L.A. mansion. That's the idea is that the, in the L.A. house, he's like, oh, I'll, I'll, take, this to, yeah. I'll take this to Washington. So the Secret Service did take Elvis's gun. Well, at least they're good for something. Right. So here's the crazy thing. Nixon becomes known for taping things. But we do not have any audio of this. Uh, he hadn't gone full fuckwad yet, and so there is no taping system in place at this time. Re- remember, on the timeline, Watergate stuff, still two years away. That's right. One of the famous things I remember hearing about the conversation they have is Elvis talks shit about the Beatles. Yeah, this is in everything you read. Is He calls the Beatles anti-American yeah. when he is standing there talking to Nixon. And remember, the other conversation on the plane is with this soldier coming back from Vietnam. And so there's this whole like pro America down with the protesters vibe that's happening with all of this. Yeah. And this is from uh, Nixon's aides uh, notes. Bud, Bud, Bud Crow. Yeah. Bud Crow. Yeah. Pr- uh, quote, Presley indicated that he thought the Beatles had been a real force for anti-American spirit. The president then indicated that those who use drugs are also those in the vanguard of the anti-American protests. And this is where Elvis makes the ask. He makes the ask for a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Uh, can we get him a badge? Nixon asked Crow. Crow said he could, and Nixon ordered it be done. And this is from the Crow notes again. Quote, in a surprising, spontaneous gesture, Elvis put his left arm around the president and hugged him. Yeah, that that totally happened. So now remember, Jerry Schilling and Red West are with him, but they aren't allowed into the Oval Office. They tell them that initially, right? But before he leaves, he asks Nixon if they can come in for photos too. I mean, what a buddy, right? <laughs> so they get to come in 
and Nixon gifts them with a pair of cufflinks, both of them. And then Elvis... Because oh, Elvis has no fear or shame. Right. He, 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 has, he has an extra ask. <laughs> he says, Mr. President, they have wives, too. So Nixon gives them a White House brooch for their wives. And, and what happens next, though, is my favorite part of the story. Yeah. This is the part of the story that I was not aware of. They oh, you didn't know this? No, that they go eat lunch at the White House mess hall. <laughs> when I read this, I thought White House mess was a generic term. That's actually the official title of the place. Mess hall, it's military. You're right, but the White House mess is like a literal place still in the White House. And it is a small dining facility. It's run by the Navy. It's in the basement of the West Wing, and it's next to the Situation Room. Listen. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah, this is 100% true. And this is all in the show notes. You can actually see pictures of it. There's a there's a webpage about it. Uh, the, the mess seats about 50 people at a dozen tables adorned with elegant table linens, fresh flowers, official White House china, decorated with wood paneling, nautical trim, and ship paintings. Table reservations are available to senior White House officials, including commissioned officers, cabinet secretaries, and their guests. There is a nearby takeout window. There's a picture of this in the photos in the show notes. Open to all White House staff members if you want to get carryout service. So, yeah, so you're telling me that at lunch one day there's all these people in the White House hanging out, and then this guy with sideburns with purple velvet suit and a fucking cape comes walking in <laughs> to eat lunch with Nixon. Just for a second, that imagine, happened. imagine being somebody. It, well, and you also have to think, like, even then. Security at the White House can be real tight. So it's not like surprises happen in the White House. Everything's got to be planned. Everybody's got to know. That's one of the really remarkable things about this story is that it is a surprise. Like, and I think that's, I didn't adequately put my finger on it up top, but like, that's the thing, right? It's like, why is the story so noteworthy? It's because he shows up and they're so flabbergasted that this guy has the gumption to show up and ask to come in that they just let him in. Yeah. There's no surprises for uh, the head of state. And so they legit send him there because they need time to find one of these badges. So that's why they send him to the White House mess. Because they haven't found the badge yet. So they're like, why don't you go get some food? So they find one. They walk it down to the mess hall, hand it to Elvis, and then they're just like, okay, finish up. (laughs) Eat that Salisbury steak, King. You you got to go. And then Elvis asks for this meeting to be kept secret. And that's what we talked about up top, right? And in this day and age, this would be an immediate news story, whether anybody wanted it to be or not. The line cook in the mess hall would have it on YouTube in three minutes and 13 seconds. And in... You know, 1970, they keep it under wraps for a year. And then, of course, the whole story takes on a life of its own when Bob Green starts telling people there's photos for sale from the National Archive. Yeah. You know, the only way this could get cooler if, if Elvis at, at the end had said, I want to do a karate uh, demonstration with Henry Kissinger <laughs> or something. <laughs> like, you want to do a karate Which, honestly, if you told me that that had happened, I would, at this point, I would believe it. Yeah. When I watch videos of Elvis doing karate demonstrations, it really makes me think I'm watching Jerry Lawler. Like, it doesn't (laughs) feel real. I mean, you know, wrestling, it's it's entertainment or whatever, Uh, but like, Elvis is not really hitting, like, he's just doing the thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and he like he, I'm sure they were like, well, no, no, Lily, you're gonna have to keep that white belt a little longer, like <laughs> straight to the black belt with the king of rock and roll, no matter how crappy he is. Uh, well, it's funny when I when I suggested that we do this on the show, you were a little trepidatious because you 
said to me off the mic, I'm a man from Tennessee. Yeah, you can't mess this up. I can't mess it up. I have a certain reputation to uphold. So when we talk about Elvis, you take it very seriously. I know because it's a serious thing to your family. And, and you know, I grew up in a religious household, and I would see religious artifacts in people's houses. You, you grew up in a Tennessee household, and you saw Velvet Elvises. Yeah, I saw Velvet Elvises. Like, I didn't see it in my house. Like, we didn't. But you, you'd go to the neighbors, and you'd be like, oh, shit. They worship at the the altar of Elvis. I saw Velvet Elvis like before they were in pawn shops and like <laughs> flea markets. Like I saw that, and it's not like my family or my. I'm just saying, like you know, it's where I'm from, and I don't want to, you know, you don't want to mess no. that up. I appreciate know. that. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I want to make sure that we tell the story about the drug-addled king of rock and roll who wants to get a letter to the president of the United States. <laughs> So he can get a narcotics badge so he can carry guns and drugs everywhere he wants to in the world. I want to make sure that story is accurately told, Brian. So also recently, thank you very much. Speaking on Elvis, you and speaking on what was or was he not on, uh, you know, a lot of narcotics of some sort. You sent me a recording. Talk about this recording of him on stage. Oh, yeah. It's 69. It's the, you know, after the. 68 comeback special and the black leather suit and how super freaking hot he was. So he's doing like the first long engagement in Vegas, 69. And I couldn't believe they put this on there, but there's a, a version of, are you lonesome tonight? And he switches the lyrics like real early on where he says something about like, you have no hair and then he loses it and never gets it back. And it's two minutes of Elvis <laughs> giggling and laughing. Uh, and he never he never makes it really back into the song. And it sounds like, you know, he's having a blast. <laughs> Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your memory stray to a bright summer day when I kissed you and called you sweetheart? Do the chairs in your parlor seem empty and bare? Do you gaze at your ball head? And wish you had hair <laughs> Filled with pain Shall I come back? <laughs> Tell me, dear Are you lonesome? <laughs> oh, Lord, Lord I wonder how <laughs> You know, someone said that world's a stage and each must play a part. Doctor. 
Did he say someone call Sinatra? No, he said I had no cause to doubt you. He's <laughs> <laughs> trying to sing this song. <laughs> okay. Tell me, dear, are you lonesome? <laughs> Is your heart? It's hard not to have fun listening to that. <laughs> I don't know if we should, but I have a hard time not. There, there's literally a part in it where you hear, like, if you listen real carefully, he's laughing and, like, he's trying to get it. And you can hear him going, <laughs> It's like, oh, he's, he's just as hammered as he wants to be because he's literally having a blast oh my goodness uh well thank you for the letter emily and if you want to get involved in the show if you've got something you want us to uh clarify for you research for you find out if it's true you know how to do it it's we are the story guys at gmail.com the website is we are the story guys.com instagram is backslash rock and roll bedtime stories and patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories if you want to support the show with your dollar bills you can do that there and until next time what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Keep, keep telling stories, Lily. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.